Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. In fact, I've been here, what, 24 hours, kind of in and out here at the church, and I actually, I love this church. You have an incredible place. You have incredible leaders. Um, I've listened to and watched two messages of Tim in this last week, and so I told my wife I sort of have a pastor-to-pastor crush on him right now, okay? I'm just telling you. So great, great place, and it's an honor for me to be with you. We had a confident parenting seminar yesterday. We learned two things. One is there is no such thing as a confident parent. Um, Well, I was a confident parent until I had kids, and then I lost my confidence as kids started coming along. And also that all families are messy. So you don't have to worry. I'm not going to come in and beat you up as we talk about families today. Actually, I think I'm going to encourage a lot of you. Because as we look to the word and as we talk about families, I think a lot of you are doing this. You just don't realize that it's working because none of us who have children who are still in the home and even our adult children, who I have adult children, you know, none of them are coming up and going, hey, thanks so much for all the discipline you gave me and the calm, you know, whatever. They're just not doing that, okay? And I was thinking as I I came here that as I stood up uh, last night, I, I looked out at the audience and I was thinking about an event I had some time ago. I was speaking at the first National Youth Workers Convention in Guatemala, of all places, and uh, the room is about like this room, so it kind of reminded me of this place, and as I started speaking, I went through the first session. I was going to do five that day, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the first session, a woman walked in the back, and I could see her. People couldn't, but they were mainly, the people sitting down were dressed like you and I would be dressed. She was not. She was in a native costume. She had this incredible skirt that was white and red and green, and she had an embroidered blouse, and she had this kind of unique hat kind of going, and she was about four foot 11 by four foot 11. Um, But you know what's interesting is? She was amazingly radiant. And in the middle of my talk, my friend Jeffrey DeLeon, who's my interpreter, stopped me and said, Jim, just a minute, and he looked at her, and in Spanish, he said, it's an honor to have you here, and we are really blessed by your presence. Thank you so much for coming. And then the people clapped. So I thought, wow, who is she? But I couldn't really ask in the middle of the sermon. So he goes, okay, now you can go ahead. So I finished my talk. And when I was finished, the first thing I did was I stopped. We prayed. I stopped and said, Jeffrey, who's the lady? And he said, oh, sorry for interrupting you in the middle of your message. But, you know, that's a big deal to have her come. She's kind of the Mother Teresa of Guatemala. She lives about 12 hours from here up in the very dangerous mountains where there's big time drug cartels. And This is what she does. She goes from village to village sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with children, and she also works with unwed mothers. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That's what I love. I mean, how incredible that you um, have this woman who who does that. He said, it's actually really dangerous. And I said, I'd love to meet her. She's radiant. He goes, I know. She's the most radiant person I've ever seen. And so I said, well, let's go see her. And he goes, well, what do we do with these people? Because we passed out a book to everybody in this convention that was in Spanish that I'd written, they'd translated it, and so um, I said, well, I wanna meet her. Why don't you sign the books because they're not gonna know what I would say anyway, and I'll go meet her. So I go downstairs, I get to about the second or third row, and then I said, hey, Jeffrey, I'm gonna need some help, meaning I need some interpreter um, help for the talk to the woman, and he said, we'll, we'll get you somebody. He said, incidentally, her 12-year-old son died like just a few months ago. Well, now all of a sudden, the whole thing changed. Because I'm going, wait, she's radiant, and I was going to talk about her radiance, but now my heart is breaking for this incredible woman who had lost her son. Found out later is because he was killed by drug cartel because of what 
the mom was doing. So you can only imagine what she was going through. So I walked up to her, and in the most broken Spanish known to humankind, I said, lo siento, I'm sorry. And then I said, how do you manage to be so radiant in the midst of your grief? And she was grieving, because I could tell, which I hadn't seen, but her eyes welled up with tears when I brought it up. Somehow we had connected. And she said something to me that I'll never forget. She said, porque niños son la cerca a la corazón de Dios, because children are closest to the heart of God. That's how I manage. And at first I wanted to almost argue with her because theologically all of us are close to the heart of God, of course. But it reminded me of some of the words and actions of Jesus when it comes to children. Amazing that Eddie spoke a little bit on this last week. But I want to take you today to not just the words of Jesus, but the actions of Jesus. And actually I'm going to share with you one of the most radical scriptures in all the Bible, but if you read it, Without knowing some of the background, we may not think it's all that radical. And it's found in the book of Mark 10, 13 through 16. You can follow along in your notes or you can follow along here on the slide up above. But it's actually a story with drama. And in fact, many of us have seen a picture painted and it's in a pastoral setting and there's children all around and there's lambs and Jesus sometimes even has a lamb around his neck and he's, you know, he's, he's with children and it's just this beautiful pastoral thing. But that's not exactly what happened apparently in the scripture. So in Mark 10, 13, we pick it up there. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. Let's stop right there. What we have is immediate drama. 2,000 years ago, and this is important for us to understand the context, the way rabbis, not Jesus, but the way rabbis treated children and actually even women was oftentimes on the same level as dogs. That's a a quote that you would see all throughout the written literature 2,000 years ago. So they didn't have time or energy for children. They didn't have time or energy actually for women. And yet what Jesus did was he apparently allowed these children because they were present and the parents were present, but the disciples rebuked them. Didn't rebuke Jesus. The disciples rebuked the parents for even bothering to bring children to Jesus, right? They didn't understand totally. But then it goes on to say, and there's more anger involved, and it happens to be from Jesus, 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. So in other words, he was hacked. He was angry. The New Testament is written in Greek. Indignant means angry. So Jesus was angry. He wasn't angry at the children. He wasn't angry at the parents. No, he was actually angry at his disciples because his disciples rebuked the parents. And then in his anger, he makes one of the most remarkable statements, and I'll let Tim or one of the others, Eddie, somebody else, unpack this one day. But in that scripture, it goes on to say, in, as he's saying it in anger, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. Incredible, powerful statement. It goes on to say, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never innocent, will never, will never enter it. It's the innocence of a child and the willingness and the surrender that you see over and over again. And then he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. In other words, he kind of did something with his disciples who he lives with and who he's been spending time with. He kind of went like this because he went and placed his hands on them. He blessed them and showed affection to the children, which was unlike rabbis in that day. Now let's not just stop there. Let's move to Mark chapter nine because in Mark nine, we actually see something else that's insightful. Now we're going backwards instead of forwards. But in Mark 9, it's probably the same children. It's probably the same parents because it's the same village apparently. They came to Capernaum, it says earlier. And it says in verse 36, he, Jesus, took a child 
whom he'd placed among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, and listen to these statements. This is where it's radical. This is where he could have actually got killed. And the, the leaders in the, Jew, in the Jewish world would have been angry at this. He said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. The radical side to that scripture is that he basically is saying, when you welcome a child, you welcome me. All of us just welcome Jesus. We had two children up here in a beautiful way, and you've been doing it at every service, and you'll do it at every service. And when we welcome those children as a church, we welcome Jesus. We weren't always thinking about that. Maybe we had other thoughts in our mind. But when you welcome a child, you who are, who are soccer moms, you who are hockey dads, grandparents, aunties, uncles, one day going to have children, you who are children, hear this, that when you welcome a child, Jesus says, you welcome me. He probably got blank stares at that, but then he went on to say, but not just me, but the one who sent me. So in other words, when you welcome a child, you welcome God. So back to my story, when the woman said, because children are closest to the heart of God, she absolutely was spot on. It doesn't mean that we're not close to the heart of God as adults, but it does mean that Children are very close to his heart. I mean, look at verse 42. It's not a verse we like to share because it kind of shows some anger in Jesus again. But sometimes in our anger, we see the true heart and nature of someone. And in this it says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone was hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I mean, the heart God has for children is quite incredible. That's why I love this church. I love your children's ministry. I love your, your youth ministry because you care for families. How, what a privilege for me to come yesterday and, and do this parenting conference because really you as parents or even as grandparents, you have the power to help your kids become responsible adults one day who would love God. And it's actually on us, not just on the church. The church is here to help. But there's some amazing statements out of what I just read to you. And the first one, and I want to go back and give you three, but the first one is found in Mark 10. And in Mark 10, Jesus at the beginning said, let the children come. He went on to say, don't hinder them, but let the children come to me. And so in other words, every one of us need to hear this, but we bless children with our presence. Now, again, we bless everybody in our family with our presence. Some of you are about ready to do Thanksgiving and Christmas, and you're not sure you really want to do presents with your family. Not gifts. I'm talking about just kind of like being there, okay? We've got one set of family that we'll be with, and we go, okay, we can do this for two hours, okay? Make it happen, and then we're gone. So it's not always easy. I'm, all families are dysfunctional. All families can, can be tough. But I want you to hear and understand something, that presence matters. And for many of you, you're doing this, you're just not getting the result today because parenting, family, and anything is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And what I want to say to you is that presence matters so much that, in fact, children regard your very presence as a sign of caring and connectedness. Okay, and so let's say, for example, that you know your kids. I mean, they want you know they want a new uh, iPad, they want this and that, and they want you know video games and all this. If you're if you have kids in that area, but more than that, they want your presence. But they're not saying that to you. But all studies show that they see your presence as a sign of caring and connectedness. And even if you're a grandparent and you're away, there's this amazing thing that uh, Al Gore invented in the 1980s called the internet. Okay. <laughs> And you can FaceTime and they feel present. We may feel awkward if we're older, but they don't because that's their way of connecting and connecting is connecting to them, see. I call this the power of being there. 
And I actually think that American families are doing better than we sometimes think, even in the midst of the crazy culture that's being thrown at us, because we do practice sometimes the power of being there. My mom taught me that. Now, my dad was an alcoholic, so I came from a dysfunctional family. My grandpa on my mom's side, her father was an alcoholic. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. And so our family was kind of dysfunctional. We didn't really do connection well. And I met Kathy the first day of college. And then on the week after we graduated, we got married. So she came from kind of a crazy family. I came from the alcoholic family. So, you know, our first year of marriage wasn't easy. Uh, I was a youth pastor at a church in Southern California called Yorba Linda Friends. And we would argue on the way to church. And then I would talk to the kids about the joy of a Christian family feeling somewhat hypocritical. Okay. Finally, we kind of put a stake in the ground and we kind of got rid of the D word for us because our family was just, you know, divorce was everywhere. And uh, that changed our our way. We said, we can recover. We're not going to repeat. And it's been one of the greatest things we've ever done. Now, Kathy still uses the M word, murder, but (laughs) that's another story. After 45 years of marriage, you'd think she'd get used to me. But my mom, going back to my mom, she was really the you know, strength in my life, and she taught me the power of being there. And my mom was in hospice, and uh, this has been a while ago, not that long, and, you know, when somebody's in hospice, you show up, and I live in a place called Dana Point, California. My mom and dad lived in Seal Beach, California, in Southern California, and most every day, I would drive that 45-minute drive. Sometimes, I wouldn't even be there. Usually, around lunch, I'd go, and I wouldn't even be there for 45 minutes sometimes. It was presence. It was my presence with her and her presence with me. And yet, it wasn't even that there was great communication going on, sometimes hardly any. And one day, I'm sitting on mom and dad's bed, and mom's in a hospital bed. She's kind of all hooked up and on morphine, and she's out. This day was not going well. We weren't having a big conversation, and we'd been told it was going to be a couple of weeks. My dad was watching a baseball game in the living room, and all of a sudden, my mom looked up at me and said, Jimmy, where's your dad? So she was almost agitated, and so I said, well, Mom, I can go get dad. He's watching a baseball game. She goes, no. She just goes back to sleep. So again, I kind of look at my watch. It's about 45 seconds later, maybe a minute, and it seemed like a long time, and all of a sudden, she looks up again, kind of agitated, and she goes, Jimmy, where's your dad? And I'm, well, let me go get him. He's, He's in the living room. He's watching a baseball game. Same routine paused. She kind of looked up at me, clear as could be, and she said, you know, I never liked baseball. (laughs) I go, Mom, you never liked baseball. Did you ever miss a Little League game of mine? I don't think so, Jim. Did you ever miss a junior high game, a high school game, American Legion? Mom, you would go to my practices. You used to embarrass me because you would knit at my practices, and they'd make fun of me for you knitting. What, what do you mean? My brother played for the Chicago White Sox. Remember when he was in the minor leagues? You bought a shortwave radio so you could hear him play in Sarasota, Florida, and all around until he got into the bigs. What do you mean you, you don't like baseball? Dad watches hundreds of games, and you seem to watch just as many. What do you mean you don't like baseball? And she looked at me like I was a little crazy, and she said, well, Jimmy, I, I didn't go there to watch baseball. I, I went there to be with you. Jimmy got in the car a little bit later. That would be me. And I got driving and I started crying. And I started crying because, again, it was the grief of knowing I was going to lose my mom, but also I went, how amazing. Her presence in my life, she didn't even like baseball, but it was the power of being there. So I want to look at every one of you and say, with whatever your family's going through and whatever is happening, presence matters. It's the power of being there. And Jesus taught us that because he said, let the children come. No other rabbi was doing that at that time. But he allowed children to come into his presence, and in doing that, he blessed them big time. 
Now, I'm going to skip a couple of verses, and I'll let Tim one day unpack these, like I said. But I want to go to verse 16. And verse 16 is the second point, and it's actually what some people sometimes call in Scripture a throwaway Scripture. And it doesn't mean that the Scripture isn't the inspired Word of God. What it means is, is there any insight from the Scripture world? There's actually a lot of insight in this Scripture. In verse 16, as we look at this verse in chapter 10, it says, And Jesus took the children in his arms, and he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Do you know that when you place your hands on children in a proper and affectionate way, you're, you're blessing them with affection? I don't think we talk enough about this in the church. But you know what? We all crave affection. Jesus showed the parents and he showed the disciples, but more than that, he showed the children that he was going to bless them with affection as those moms and dads were holding their children. There was affection, and, it, and, and that affection gives people strength. I drove by on Saturday when I was coming here, Los Gatos High School. What an incredibly beautiful school from the direction I was coming, and there's all kinds of other schools around this place. And I'm convinced that there's a lot of kids who are sexually promiscuous, not because they crave sex, but because they crave affection and they didn't get it at home. Maybe there's some of you like that who made those decisions. Poor decisions because you were craving a false affection, so to speak. And yet what Jesus does over and over again in the scripture when there's children involved is he places his hands on them and he blesses them. In fact, new study out of UCLA, it says that it takes eight to 10 meaningful touches a day for someone to thrive. And yet there are people who are in this place right now who have what we call skin hunger because they would love to be touched in an appropriate way. I'm not talking about inappropriate touch, of course. And children, it's easier when they're younger. It's a little harder when they're teens to do that. You know, my dad didn't do that to me. He, 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 it was our ethnic background, maybe for some of you, with the ethnic background that you came from. You know, there wasn't a lot of, of touch or hugs. I mean, if you're Italian, you, you know, your parents like, kissed on you all the time. Uh, but my, my background is Scotch-Irish, and so my dad worked hard, and he showed us by working hard, making money. That was his way of saying, I love you. He didn't really say, I love you. And my mom, kind of the same way, she cooked and made food and, come in, I've got food for you, you know, and that was her way of saying, I love you. But there wasn't that love hug stuff. When I got to college, I had a psychology professor say, you know what, if your parents don't show affection to you, then you show affection to your parents. And I even did that one time. I remember coming back home for Christmas or something, and I put my arms kind of around my dad, and I said, Dad, I love you. And he didn't know what to do. It was like he was a tree, you know. <laughs> and then almost in fear, it was kind of like he started going, well, and he started to cry. And then he started to cough because he was emotional, and he said, well, I, I love you too. It was maybe the first time I'd ever heard him say that, and, and, it, the, and he kind of gave me a hug. I mean, he was good at doing noogies. What that means is when I was 13, he would always go like this to me. I'm convinced that's why I'm bald, okay? <laughs> Honestly. Did your dad do the same thing to you? Okay, I got it. So, you know, when they're 13 to 17, it's not like they're going to go kiss me, face, huggy. They're going to you're going to have to sneak in those noogies or, you know, if they're guys, slug them in the arm. If they're girls, you know, give them a gentle love and move on. And sometimes they'll go, ew. But kids need affection. So I've written a lot on the area of sexuality. And back at the book table, there's books on, you know, three to five talking about sexuality, six to nine, and then, of course, the teen years. And one of the things that's happened because of a book that I wrote called The Purity Code, which is probably the most often book used in the teen years to teach healthy, God-honoring sexuality, um, is that people want me to talk to their kids who you know, are blowing it. So this board member of ours had a friend 
who had a daughter who was 17 years old and she was caught in the act. Um, what had happened, her and her, her boyfriend were at home. They ditched school, they were at home, mom and dad both work. Mom comes home and finds her daughter in mom and dad's bedroom. There you go. So, you know, all, all, you know, all kinds of stuff happens. And so now I find him in my office, and the mom and the dad are on one side of my couch. It's not a big couch. And then I see her on the other side, but she's never looked up at me. So you can tell that the car ride must have been a great joy, because she's like, I do not want to go see this guy. And um, the mom and dad are like convinced I have something for them. So the, the dad tells me the story. I'd already heard the story, but the dad tells me the story. <clears throat> and in the middle of it, he called his daughter a bad name. And I was like, oh, man. Now, the girl has not looked. Her head is down the whole time, but I can see a tear dripping down her cheek when the dad called her the bad name. I understand that. So that, we were not going to go anywhere, so I said, would you two mind going out? I'd like to talk to your daughter alone. And when I have three daughters, so of course I have no hormones or drama in my life, okay? And um, only girls in our family. It's, it's crazy. And... And so what I said was, I said, could I just talk to your daughter? Well, I got an eye roll from the daughter um, because, well, I think it's hereditary with some kids and that was her eye roll, but I, all three of my daughters have given me the eye roll. Well, actually my wife sometimes does too, but that's another story. So they leave. I'm not even sure they wanted to go. She wasn't sure she wanted to talk with me and now she's looking down. She's not looking up. Now it was probably only a minute, but it felt like it was hours so I just do this, and I waited her out, because I knew she, she's a teenager, she's, she's, gotta, she's curious, she's gotta see what, what is this guy doing now, and so I'm just quiet, and I'm like looking down at her. All of a sudden she kinda goes, looks up with her eyes kinda like this, and I went, hi. I go, that was rough. She goes, well, it's true, I love teens, because they're so oftentimes authentic and transparent, and they kinda tell you what it is. She goes, you know, that did happen, and you know, I've done it other times, they just don't know about it. And then she said something that was interesting. She didn't want to talk about her experience with the boy. She said, I used to be close to my dad. I didn't ask her about her dad. Said, you know, he is the one who taught me how to play tennis. She was an all-state tennis player um, with a major scholarship to a major school in California to play tennis. And uh, she was 17. And... She said, my dad's the one who taught me how to read and he'd put me on his lap and he'd read to me and you know, he'd wrestle with me and then he would always teach me this little deal and he'd put me on his lap and then he'd go, this is the way the horses ride and she started you know, giving me this little poem and I finished the poem because my parents did that for me with the same poem, kind of random and we started laughing at each other going, this is really random. And then she got serious and she said, you know, one of the greatest things, Jim, I didn't even know she knew my name. But one of the greatest things was that my dad would lift me up in the air when he'd come home from work. I'd come zipping around and he'd lift me up in the air and he'd say, how's my little princess? And when she said the word princess, she said, he always called me his princess. And then his lip start, or her lip started to quiver and she said, but I guess I'm not his princess anymore. I almost had heard enough right there. We'd bond a little bit more. <laughs> And then I said, can I bring your parents back in? And I could tell she didn't want her parents to come in. She, we were now kind of buddies. But we need her parents to come back in. So they came in and I said, can I ask you a question? I said, tell me about your relationship with your daughter. You know, we talked about the experience, but tell me about your relationship. And the dad, you know, chipped in. He said, you know, we used to be close. And he put his hand on his wife's hand, not on his daughter's, but his daughter was too far away anyway. And he said, you know, I'm the one who taught her how to play tennis. 
And I had just heard that, but he acted like I had not heard that. And I'm the one who, you know, I put her on my lap and we read, we would read and read and read together and we'd wrestle. And, and then he goes, I mean, it's the same lines. He goes, and then I taught her this thing. She may not remember it, but this is the way the horses trot. The girl and I just look at each other and go, he looks really weird doing that. But, you know, we kind of smiled and then he got serious and he said, you know, Jim, the greatest thing for me during that season of life when she was younger was that I would come home from work and she would come zipping over a bush, she would come around a, a chair, whatever it is, and she would you know, come up to me and I would just lift her up and I'd say, how's my little princess? And then his lips started to quiver. I think we had hereditary lip quivering going on here. <laughs> and then his eyes welled up with tears and he said, and then she got to be about 12 or 13 and she kind of copped an attitude and he looked at her like, you know, kind of putting her down and then he set her down in his mind with his hands. And I said to that dad, and actually to the mom, and I'd say it to any of you, I said, my friend, if you don't hug your daughter with appropriate hugs, and then I said it to the woman too, I mean, you too, that there are hundreds of boys, and I looked at this girl, she was gorgeous, and I said, actually, there's thousands of boys who would love to hug her with inappropriate hugs and more. And so what I want to say to you is that I don't know what your family is like. I don't know what the environment is like. I don't know if it's chaotic. I don't know if there's deep tension, but... What Jesus shows us is that he blessed, it's actually a form of blessing, he blessed children by showering them with affection, appropriate, appropriate affection. And so that's something you do, and that's something you can do. Now some of you probably don't do it as well. I don't say that my dad was the star at that. And I'm not saying that there have been times in my life when I've been so distracted that, you know, was I as affectionate with my own girls? But Jesus taught us something else, and it's found in the book of Mark, again, but it's at nine. So when you look at chapter nine, it's that verse that I read that I said was so, you know, kind of radical, and at verse 36 and 37, he took a child, it's probably the same children, it's the same place, probably the parents, and taking that child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcome me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. We, we read that scripture. And so you bless children by placing spiritual deposits into their life. Actually, if you're married, you bless each other by placing spiritual deposits into your life. And a lot of times, it doesn't work so well for us because maybe we're angry or we have some low-level anger or bitterness that kind of raises us into contempt. And so there's not a lot, lot of good relationships going on here. But really, it's our call to do that. And I'm convinced that I'm not going to be a good husband or a good father if I'm living my life at too fast of a pace where I'm not giving them spiritual deposits. I think it's my role to do that, and I think it's your role too. And, and what's amazing about it is that maybe the biggest problem in America that keeps us from placing spiritual deposits in the life of people within our family is this breathless pace in which we live our lives. When I graduated from Princeton, I did my grad work at Princeton and I didn't stay for the graduation. I was actually coming up to the Bay Area to work on a, in a Christian ministry on the Delta, a houseboat ministry. And so my wife and I, somewhat still newlyweds, just a couple years, we, had, we were driving across the country when the graduation happened. I didn't stay for the graduation. It's been a problem for me that I won't stay and celebrate. I'm on to the next thing, say. So this time, I didn't stay and celebrate. My friend David Hughes, who's a great guy, he wrote me a note, and uh, it came here to California or, you know, after the graduation, but he said, Dear Jim, we missed you at graduation. He said, I got a phrase for you. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Well, that was prophetic for me. 
And what's even amazing is that David hardly remembers it because I was speaking at a pastor's conference a few years back. David is a well-known pastor in North Carolina and he was telling me about how busy he was and I said, well, hey, you wrote me a note one time that said if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. He goes, really? That's good. I need to write that down. (laughs) But you know what? For some of us, we're so busy that we become fatigued. And it was that great theologian, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, who was the coach, but he said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I'm convinced that when I'm fatigued, that's when I'm the worst parent, that's when I'm the worst husband. And I'm not saying we all need to move and live in a commune someplace. I'm saying, no, we have to figure out here in one of the most complicated places in the universe, where you live and where I live. But isn't it possible that some of the things that happen in our families is because we're just so busy? I was speaking at something called the Promise Keepers Pastors Conference. It was a number of years ago, and it was at Diamondback Stadium, and it was all these pastors, 40-some thousand pastors. And I was in the back because I was going to come on, and the worship team, who was amazing, was doing it. And I was talking to the master of ceremonies. Actually, we called him the pastor of ceremonies. His name is Jack Hayford, and he's a well-known Christian leader. He's now in his 80s, um, but he's been a well-known Christian leader for you know years, years and years and years, all over the world. And I said to Jack, as I say to a lot of Christian leaders, I'd probably ask Tim this, but what I, what I said to him was I said, Jack, what's the secret to your leadership success? And what Jack said to me was interesting. He said, Jim, it's not what I've chosen to do. Because a lot of people say it's because I do this and we think about what we do as a living or you know, whatever. He said, it's not what I've chosen to do, it's what I've chosen not to do. He said, I've had to say no to some good things to say yes to the most important things. I pushed him, what's the most important things? He said, it's my relationship with God. It's my relationship with my wife, and he named his wife. By the way, he just lost his wife. It's my relationship with my kids, and he named all of his kids, and and then he had a whole host of grandkids, and it's my grandkids, and he named them. He said, I've had to say no to some opportunities to say yes to them. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a job and that he doesn't do leadership and that he doesn't speak around the world and all these amazing things that he does. But what he said was that, yes, all of us need to say no to some good things to say yes to the most important things. I know in my own life, I have three questions I ask myself all the time, and it's about my busyness. And the first question is, do I like the person I'm becoming? And I only like the person I'm becoming when I'm not so over busy that I'm going crazy. Number two, I have to ask the question, is the work of God I'm doing destroying the work of God in me? Maybe another another way of looking at that is, is my heart for God shrinking or growing? Is your heart for God shrinking or growing? And the last question, which really relates to what I'm talking about the most, is am I only giving my wife and my children my emotional scraps? Because I'm not going to give you my emotional scraps, but do I give them my emotional scraps too often? And what I'm afraid is, is that happens too often in families. That we give everything out and we pour ourselves out to all this other stuff that may not be as important as our relationship with God and our relationship with our family, see? And so, again, what we want to think about is Jesus says, when you welcome a child, you welcome me. We're, we're welcoming God when we welcome our children. And I know it's messy, and I know it's not easy. You know, I just put a book out called Doing Life with Your Adult Child, Keep Your Mouth Shut and the Welcome Mat Out, which basically summarizes the book. Um, but the interesting side to it is, is the book has drawn so much energy because of parents who even have adult children are saying, you know, we didn't know our kids were going to violate values. We didn't know they were going to stray from faith. 
And it both has the secular and the, the Christian world, you know, talking about this. And so it's not just when you have little kids. It's also when we have older kids. How do we do this, see? I was speaking in Hawaii. A woman called me and said, can you come and speak in Honolulu, Hawaii? I said, let me pray about that. Yeah, yeah, it's Hawaii. I can. And it was 8,000 kids. It was at the Blaisdell Arena. And we're talking on, on sexual purity, interestingly enough. When I was done, the band had played. Miss Hawaii had spoken on abstinence. She did a perfectly great testimony-type job. And then I spoke, and I challenged the kids to live by the purity code. In honor of God, my family, my future spouse, I commit to sexual purity or sexual integrity. And it's pretty cool when you see this happen. And they're doing that right then. They were making these commitments. And I walked down the stage, and I went to the front row, and there was a woman sitting in the front row, a woman that many people would, would actually know. I won't use her name. And her husband had had an affair. And uh, he was well-known within the Christian world, extremely well-known. And uh, she was going to speak the next day, and they were still making it happen in their own marriage. And she was crying. She looks through her tears at me, and she said, you know what? While you were speaking, I think God gave me a word for you. Can I share that with you? Well, I don't know about you, but that always scares the bejeebies out of me. When people come up and say, I have a word from God for you, I go, is my zipper down? Is, you know. But with her, man, I trusted her. And so I said, no, lay it on me. And she said, untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. I think I'm supposed to say that to you. And I went, you are. Because I find that if I don't tend the fire within my own soul, I'm of no benefit to my family. I'm of no benefit to anything. And yet for a lot of us, we're so busy doing quote unquote important things that we become overcommitted. We Christians, we become overcommitted and underconnected with our primary relationships, say. And so I think what we're calling Families to do is bless our children and bless each other by placing spiritual deposits into, their, into our lives. Are you willing to do that? Say. My, uh, my situation in, in that is the Bible says that the man or woman of integrity walks securely, and I want to be a person of integrity, and so I realize that if I walk with integrity, I will be secure, but also my children will be secure. And it doesn't mean purpose. Perfect, my wife and I. Our integrity issue is our marriage. We've been married 45 years. We have what we call a high maintenance marriage. Now, I mean, we speak on marriage. We're speaking at Mount Hermon this year in February on their, you know, at their couples conference. I mean, we do that. But we've had to really work on our marriage, and I'm not turning this into a marriage issue, but you know what? For some of us, do your kids a favor, love your spouse. That's what you do by placing a spiritual deposit in their life. Security comes in many different ways. And so again, I don't know your situation, but I know this, that God will never leave you or forsake you. And I want to say this loud and clear, that your family, I realize, isn't perfect. I know mine isn't. But I also know that we have a God, a Heavenly Father, who wants to come alongside of us. And you can either do family with God or without God. Jesus demonstrates Three simple points in this message. There are other parts of other messages. But Jesus demonstrates, and for many of you, you're doing it. Walk out of here and rejoice. For others, you may need to tweak something. Sometimes in a message like this, there's something that the Lord is speaking to your heart on about reconciliation with someone or an I'm sorry or I know we don't have this perfect. I don't know what he's telling you to do, but I know this, that God wants to work in your family. He's the creator of families. And that he never promised it would be easy, but what he promises is that he will walk with us through it. And so again, the Bible says, I will never leave you or forsake you.
So as you walk from here, we'll have another song, and maybe some of you might even want to pray with the incredible prayer team that you have. But if you've got a burden because of your family, don't just let it go, but hand it to God, who welcomes family and welcomes the messes as well and wants to redeem those messes. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you so much for these men and women. Thank you for a church like Venture that cares for families like it does. And I pray, God, that today, yes, today, that, Lord, you would speak to our hearts and to our minds and that, God, where there is a need for comfort, that you would, well, that you would bring comfort. Where there's a need for challenge, that you would bring challenge. Where there's a need for us just to come to you and receive all that you have for us, may we open up our arms and our lives today to you anew and afresh. And, God, give these families strength to do the work and the will that you've given to them. May they understand their incredible calling in this. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.